Now listen up! There are hosts in this here West who have claimed to be the best, and they think they wrote the book on how to podcast. (laughs) Well, as good as they may be, not a one's as good as me, and I barely have to move a single eyelash. This movie's bad, Mom! Depraved and nasty too, and now you'll hear... Mom, the dumbest thing I do. <laughs> you see, I pot ladle, idle cast. <laughs> and that is quite a bit more than enough of that. <laughs> Pretty good, though. Pretty good yodeling. Thank you. The actual song that Randy Quaid sings, sings, quote unquote, says yeah, yeah. most of it. Yeah. But the yodeling, they kept his consonants, mm-hmm. and then the vowels were done by a mix of two different professional yodelers. <laughs> when you know that, if you listen to the soundtrack version, it's not as obvious in the movie because so much wacky stuff is happening, but you right. listen to the soundtrack version, you can really hear it, and it's really weird. <laughs> because it's, you know, you see a y- Totally, you're like, that's two different men. (laughs) Speaking of cobbled together, (laughs) home on the range. And welcome to Me, Mom, the Mouse, a podcast about the curse of watching cartoons with your family. (laughs) We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon, every single one. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? We can't even skip one. (laughs) And uh, we're talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we don't love it. My name is Isaac Coleman. I'm joined, as always, by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello, Isaac. Or should I be saying howdy? Howdy. And we want to give a special shout out to our editor, Big Hoss Brad Murray (laughs) at Oak Studios. Thanks for all the work that you do. Yeehaw, your guacamole son. (laughs) This week on the program, we are continuing the experimental era with 2004's Wretched Achievement. Home on the Range, (laughs) directed by Will Finn and John Sanford. The tagline for this movie, which really tells you everything you need to know about it, bust a moo on April 2. (laughs) We are indeed recording this in April, and uh, I hope that you all remembered to participate in the sacred ceremony (laughs) of busting a moo on April 2. (laughs) How do you bust a moo? Do you just go moo? Or do you like have to do something specific? If you have to ask how to bust a moo on April 2, you can't afford to bust a (laughs) moo on April 2. This is one of the last 2D animated films of uh, Disney's entire animated history. Mm -hmm. It's the last to use the cap system. It's a historic moment that uh, completely came and went. (laughs) It's true. And mom, what does this movie mean to you? Not a whole lot. Pretty sure we, as you said, we did go and see this one in the theaters. Can't remember why. (laughs) The only thing I can assume is it was one of those, like we wanted to go out to the movies and this movie looked like it would be okay for the entire family, right? Probably. We could get away with going to see this one and it would not be a problem for you boys, most likely. Though I don't know, it kind of has hypnotism in it. <laughs> that's the that's the entire Disney business model now more than ever is just Disney promises you'll get through this movie. <laughs> I recall 
not caring about it much, finding it pretty forgettable. Don't remember hating it or anything. Just, haha, uh-huh, that that was it, you know. And never watched it again until we watched it for this podcast. Yeehaw. Yeah, that's that's about right. We definitely saw this movie in theaters. I have a, a clear at this point, I have, you know, very clear memory of of doing that. And uh, this was in the blockbuster rotation briefly for Isaiah and I, because I found and still find like the character designs pretty appealing. Mm-hmm. And I could tell that this like it had the rhythms of a comedy. Yeah. And some part of me was just like, I should like this. Like it's <laughs> this colorful Disney movie that like moves fast and has jokes, but I'm just not laughing. Yeah. And so I've definitely seen it a few more times than you, but this was not, I mean, really it was like we rented it once, I think gave mm-hmm. it another shot. And uh, my brother and I were like, Nope, <laughs> we were right. It was bad. Yeah. And I didn't really think too much of it either. I was like, that's kind of a forgettable lame movie. We certainly weren't dreading this like Brother Bear until after we decided to do the podcast, but before it went live. Uh, this would have been August 2020, as I recall. I was watching another movie. I was watching my uh, Sense Destroyed, unfortunately, copy of the Matthew Broderick Music Man, oh, which no. is a Disney movie that came out around the same time. And it had a trailer for this on it. And just from the trailer, I remember immediately texting you being like, "Uh oh, I've just (laughs) seen the trailer for Home on the Range. This is a lot worse than we're like ready for Mm -hmm. because it's really dated. Yeah. And has a lot of humor that wasn't that good at the time, clearly, but really doesn't hold up now. Yeah. So far, my theory that this is the worst three movie run in Disney history is holding pretty strong. (laughs) I've seen Chicken Little recently enough to have no reason to believe that won't still be true. And uh, yeah, this this movie is quite unfortunate. It's not a Brother Bear level catastrophe. No, I think it's better than Brother Bear. I totally agree. Brother Bear is both more boring and just more like disturbing, problematic. Yeah, yeah. Disturbing. That's a good word for it. But this is one of the most frustrating types of movie, which is a comedy that isn't funny. Yeah, because so many comedies like you know, they don't necessarily have great characters or plot or anything else. They kind of just sacrifice everything for the joke. When the jokes are bad, it's quite excruciating. Mm-hmm. And this movie certainly is that. The The making of this movie, there's not a ton of making of material available for it other than like the DVD special features. Right. Nobody has cared enough to follow up with this movie, you it's know, true. to do any kind of a history for it. And I don't think the people who made it really enjoy talking about it. It was clearly a very, very troubled production. Yeah. Basically, it started from two different things. So Will Finn and John Sanford The eventual directors of this movie, they're both screenwriters at this time for Disney. Will Finn had actually jumped ship from Disney twice. Uh, (laughs) He actually was one of the people who left uh, with Don Bluth, Uh worked on Banjo the Woodpile Cat and Secret of Nim and then several other Don Bluth productions. He came back during the Katzenberg and Eisner era 
to do a few things. He was yet another person who worked on Sport Goofy and Soccer Mania, the completely forgotten short that's ground zero for every animator at Disney of the next 30 years. (laughs) He also worked on that terrible, illegal filmation Pinocchio sequel, Pinocchio and the Emperor of the Night that we talked about, funnily enough. Oh, yikes. (laughs) But he, he came back for Oliver and Company and stuck around for a while as a storyboard artist and all and animator and of course as a storyboard artist that means he's also involved with defining the story of these movies he worked on a bunch of stuff we talked about some of it direct to video some of it real movies (laughs) uh, and some of it sort of in the middle of those two things because he worked on a goofy movie yep and he got along with a guy named John Sanford, who was also a storyboard artist and writer for several Disney movies. He would then jump ship. They both actually jump ship to DreamWorks for a little bit. Will Finn went and worked on Road to El Dorado, had a pretty big role in that. And then Disney poached him back. <laughs> uh, John Sanford actually had been with Disney Up to this point, worked on Hunchback, worked on Mulan, and then afterwards bailed to work on Megamind and some other DreamWorks stuff and is now in television um, and has worked on a lot of TV, uh, has directed several episodes of animated TV shows and worked on several episodes, currently working on that DC superhero girls show uh, in quite a large capacity. So that's uh, these two guys. Neither of them directed any movie other than this one. (laughs) Which is always what you want to hear. Right. (laughs) And so they had this idea to do a Pied Piper movie, which Eisner pretty much immediately shot down because he was like, this is a film about a man luring children away and killing them and it wouldn't be appropriate, (laughs) which I mean, come on, you can Disneyfy that like you could you could say the same thing about like. Snow White, you know, the original Snow White. (laughs) Like, I don't know. You can mermaid. Yeah, these are all very dark stories, but whatever. You know, we've talked about at this point, Eisner's having like his five minute meetings on every movie. So that was his five minute take on it. Meanwhile, on an unrelated note, an unrelated guy named Mike Gabriel, who had been a co-director on Rescuers Down Under, and then directed Pocahontas. So we've talked about him in the past. Yeah. At the gong show where he suggested Pocahontas, he also suggested that he would really like to do a Western movie. He wanted to go back, especially to the Disney tradition of like Pecos Bill type shorts. And he wanted to adapt him and similar legends into a movie. He pitched them both at one of the gong show meetings And the execs were more interested in Pocahontas. And we talked about how that went. (laughs) But then immediately after he went back to his Western pitch, I think it's a situation very similar to Treasure Planet in that sense, where it was like one for you, one for me. (laughs) So he worked on several different ideas for this Western pitch uh, that turned into a movie called Sweating Bullets. The original idea was about a scaredy cat cowboy who visits a ghost town and has a run in with an actual ghost kind of sounds like a somewhat interesting movie. It went through several iterations. The one that was worked on the most being about a young bull named bullets and then sweating bullets became, it was called like saving bullets. So the joke being, you know, Oh, you're saving bullets, but also (laughs) his name is bullets and he needs to be saved. Yeah. Just not that, uh, not that good a joke. I would because saving bullets isn't a thing you like hear people say a, a lot, but whatever. 
I think the idea of sweating bullets was like he was going to be a coward, right? So that's why he's sweating. Yeah. He spent five years working on different versions of this, as did several other writers because the story was not coming together so they just kept adding more and more writers to it Uh, several of them from the direct-to-video world including michael labash who we've talked about uh, in the past i mentioned that he worked on this movie as well as sam levine who we'll talk about when we get to the voice acting section and of course will finn and john sanford Eventually, he was taken off the project because it was very much an Emperor's New Groove thing, I think, where it's like you've been working on this for five years. You can't crack it. We need to make a movie. Right. So you're gone, even though some animation had been done. And so uh, Finn and Sanford basically decide to combine these two ideas, the Western idea and the Pied Piper idea which is, of course, lives on through Alameda Slim singing to hypnotize cattle. <laughs> and they chose to make it much more of a comedy that originally they had the idea of two cows, both from the same farm, mm-hmm. one very prim and proper, one less so. But then they realized like purely as a story concern, they were like, well, we don't want all of our protagonists to be hypnotized by Slim. <laughs> so we'll add a third cow her joke will be that she is completely tone deaf and so she's immune to the music. (laughs) And so that's when they added Grace, which is already weird because it feels like you could easily have made Maggie the... I mean, you could have made either of the existing cows tone deaf. True. But they decided to add a third cow and that's her joke. (laughs) They also changed the character of Maggie at the last minute because like I say, they... Originally, she was going to be from Little Patch of Heaven, same as everyone else. Yeah. They changed her to be uh, an outsider because they felt there wasn't enough like conflict in the movie. (laughs) Just having these three characters who all like basically get along, Mm -hmm. which I think is a fair point. It doesn't mean the movie is successful in its final form, though. Uh, And of course, they're like, well, let's get a, a crass, you know, crude comedian. Roseanne Barr mm-hmm. uh, and they really structured the final version of the character around her but they like had done so much animation that that's one of those choices that delayed the movie uh, I think another year or something and in one of the making of things I watched it was interesting because they showed how like in several scenes that take place on the farm before Maggie arrives you can see big spaces in the choreography where she was <laughs> And they erased her, if you're really looking for it. That's funny. One thing about this movie, you know, to jump ahead to what we thought of it, is it has 8,000 characters. It really does. It has so many characters who just pop up, and very few of them have, like, even a definable point Mm -hmm. to their being in the movie, or, like, a defined joke. And... It seems like a lot of that is because when they would do new versions of the story, they would keep the existing characters regardless of whether or not they still made any sense. (laughs) So like originally, Buck was a much bigger part of the story and he was going to be an established bounty hunter who was, you know, competing with the cows Mm -hmm. and telling them they wouldn't do it. Uh, they they wouldn't be able to do it. Obviously, they change him completely. Yeah. But they still kept him in the movie. And in the final form of the movie, you could cut him out and it would not change the story at all in any meaningful sense. Yeah, not really. And there's just a lot of stuff like that where I think they fell in love with these characters. 
this is what you expected Emperor's New Groove to be. It's kind of true. This feels like several different drafts of movies stapled together. And I wonder if the fact that this has six credited screenwriters, you know, if it was like people were like, oh, but that's my favorite character. Like, that's my baby. No, we have to leave, you know, whatever the pig who's there for like two seconds in the movie (laughs) or maybe just because they had all these actors. I don't know. I don't know why, but that's the choice they made was Every time they change script, they're like, well, we got to keep these characters in the movie. Like the willies come from the original sweating bullets treatment. Like they just kept everything in some form. I did not hear of a single character that they cut. (laughs) I mean, technically, they don't have a like young bull named bullets, but they basically because he just morphed into other characters. Right, they because they decide to have three protagonists instead. Yeah. And it's uh it, it really doesn't work. Uh and in fact this movie was a massive failure. And I think it's important to talk about also kind of the broader context in which this movie comes out, which is that it was December 2003 where Roy E Disney who had essentially been fired by Eisner or was in the process of being fired by Eisner, teamed up with another Disney board member, Stanley Gold, and really started criticizing Eisner and being like, in order for Disney to survive, Eisner has to go, and really releasing a lot of this kind of stuff that's been going on. Uh, There are many things Eisner was doing wrong at this point. Obviously, we've talked about he had literal brain damage. He was not giving these movies the time and attention they deserved. He was completely distrustful of anyone working for him. And among many other points of contention, well, the big ones was he was completely destroying their relationship with Pixar, (laughs) the animation company that was making money and being successful. Exactly. Because he didn't get what they were doing and he didn't like the amount of creative control they had, among other reasons. And of course, the actual Disney branch was dying. So as like shareholders and stakeholders, even leaving aside like Roy, I think, is more motivated in an idealistic way, you know, by like we need to be making better movies. And, you know, Michael and I never got along and pomp and circumstance was stupid. (laughs) He didn't say that. But I think for Stanley Gold and the other shareholders, it's really like this guy's just not making good decisions. And Disney is in trouble. And in fact, this movie, which comes out after that, that's spring or that's uh, December of 2003. That stuff is really happening. This one came out in April. This one came out in <laughs> April 2004. So all of that is in people's minds very much. Yeah. I'll also say it should be noted that uh, 4,500 animators then signed an open letter that basically was like, yep, everything Roy and Stanley said in their open letter, that's all correct. We agree with that. We hate it here. Yeah. Yeah. So the <laughs> Disney's sort of an open revolt and uh, Eisner will be forced to step down not too long after this, at which point, of course, the uh, Bob Iger, the new person in charge of Disney, will go to Pixar and be like, please, please, please. We want to do anything we can to salvage this relationship. John Lasseter, you can have Disney, you know, animation studios, whatever you want. And so that's that's kind of the context of this time. And this is this movie feels so desperate. Mm -hmm. And what it really feels like more than anything else is 
okay, DreamWorks is making all the money right now. Let's do a DreamWorks movie. It does kind of feel like a DreamWorks movie. I don't remember if we mentioned when we were talking about Brother Bear that they actually did Brother Bear. These The release order was originally going to be reversed. It was going to be Home on the Range in 2003 and Brother Bear in 2004. And they reversed it so that Brother Bear came out in 2003 because they really wanted to promote it more. Once again, they thought it was going to be their big hit like Lion King or whatever. And so they wanted to really make a big deal of it. And Home on the Range was, you know, second best. But um, it did also then it also still worked out that they were neither of them very good. (laughs) They were neither of them good and they were both financial failures. Mm -hmm. Um, This movie led to Disney having to take a 70 million dollar write off. Yeah, not good. Yep. One thing I wanted to talk to you about, though, to share specifically was about the music. So Alan Menken comes back from the music, funnily enough, because he had this contract with Walt Disney Studios to do a certain number of songs and scores for a certain number of movies. Uh And after Hercules, Sweating Bullets was the next one he worked on. That's really funny. But of course, it took so long to make this movie he was contractually obligated to it. So it seems like, you know, oh, Alan Menken hasn't worked with Disney for a long time. You know, why'd he come back for this? <laughs> no, no. He was working on this for what did it end up be? I guess nine years it ended up being. <laughs> no, I thought it was on more like six years or so, but. He started working on it after Pocahontas in 95. It came out in 2000. Oh, no. It says he started working on the songs in 99. Well, that's true. Sorry. Mankin, Mankin started working in uh, in 99. So yeah, you're right. But yeah. still, like, this was the last movie he was contractually obligated to do. It just took so long to come out. <laughs> and then I have a clip. We don't normally play clips on this show because we're talking about one of the most litigious companies of all time. But we're going to play a small amount of audio. This is covered by fair use. Not that I think Disney's listening in anyway or cares about this audio specifically. But this is from one of the making of featurettes which is Trailblazers, the making of Home on the Range. It's from an extended part in that where Alan Menken is talking about his inspiration for the different songs. And specifically here, he's talking about, I think, Will the Sun Ever Shine Again, the sad song. Uh And there's a real curveball in this quote. So I want mom has not heard this. I want her to hear this now. They said to me, we want to write a song for the three cows, when they're lost and everything is looking bleak. And I just thought, like, where do we go from here? And I looked at him and I said, that's a terrible assignment for a song. I don't want to write a where do we go from here song. I mean, what do we do with it? You know, 9-11 happened during the making of this this film. (laughs) (laughs) The last thing I was expecting to hear. 9-11. I mean, it's it's already funny in that clip when he starts talking about how much he didn't want to write the song and they cut him off. Yeah. But I was just not ready. And it's so funny on the actual video. He's you know, he's looking very seriously and he's like, you know, (laughs) 9-11. Anyway, (laughs) listen to the rest of it now. 9-11 happened during the making of this of this film. And like many other artists, I wanted to 
write something, do something that would A, be a balm to me, um, and also to other people. So Will the Sun Ever Shine Again <laughs> is about 9-11 <laughs> in this comedy movie, Home on the Range. About cows. About <laughs> cows who are a bit sad. Actually, I was trying to remember, do the cows do anything with that song? Or is that like when Pearl is packing up her stuff? I guess you're right. I guess that is when that is. Yeah. <laughs> so it didn't even get used for the the scene he wrote it for, I guess. I actually wondered, because he'd started writing the song so early in the process, if that's why a lot of the songs just don't grab you the way so many of his songs normally do, you know, because... Maybe they were like the Emperor's New Groove songs written for a different movie. I think there's some truth to that. I will say that when we were watching the movie, we were like, wow, these songs are really dumb. Listening to them on their own, I kind of like them. They're not among Mencken's best, but yeah. And that ties in with what you're saying, though, where it's like when you listen to these out of context, they kind of work. But when you listen to them in the movie, they're really weird and out of place and don't sound right. Well, and one thing they they don't have that immediate, memorable singability that so many of his other songs do. Mm -hmm. Like you could go out of the theater from Aladdin or Little Mermaid or whatever, humming the songs after only seeing the movie once. But I only can barely remember these songs. I definitely don't know the words for most of them. And I listened to the soundtrack again today. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I like them well enough, but... You know, they're and of course, we do have to give credit for the fact that will the sun ever shine again did heal the nation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's why this movie was so important. <laughs> That's right. Oh, <laughs> uh, poor Alan Menken. I, I don't want to yeah. make fun of him too much, but I cackled when <laughs> when I'm watching the dumb home on the range documentary and it's all goofy and silly. We've just heard about the yodeling song and right? Alan Menken right. very seriously goes, <sighs> You know, 9-11 happened while we were making this movie. <laughs> the towers fell and he was thinking about cows. <laughs> it is funny to think about how long they worked on this one, because, of course, you know, that how many movies ago was Lilo and Stitch? It was like three, right? Yeah. Four? Yeah. So many movies. They had two in 2002 and then three and four and they just kept going. All right. Take us through the cast. All right. At least some of the cast. <laughs> Skim the cast, because again, there's 8,000 characters. Oh, man. Named ones, too. It's not just like all additional voices. So Roseanne Barr is Maggie, as you mentioned, the main character cow. Roseanne, of course, was a comedian. She had her, you know, TV show and she'd been in some movies and other things. But mostly, you know, she's a comedian. Very. This is basically her style, the crass jokes and all that. I don't know if you want to say anything else about her. I mean, like what you see in this movie is basically what she does. Yeah, I mean, we probably should acknowledge that she's a terrible person. That whose is brain true. has been completely turned to slime now. And but whatever <laughs> it, she at this time, her casting makes sense. Right. She was pretty popular. Judy Dench. Yay. As Mrs. Calloway. Boo. Our second cow. <laughs> She's our like stuck up cow, I guess. I don't know. 
Right. The inexplicably British cow mm-hmm. in the West. This sucks. This is so <laughs> depressing because Judy Dench is one of the greatest actors to ever do it. In, right. In my opinion. Right. And that's not a controversial one. Dame, Dame Judy Dench, all time great. Yep. And she's so good at doing this kind of role. She's very good as a funny scold. Right. Of course, I can't not talk about the Bond movies when we have a Bond connection. Mm -hmm. She is the best M to ever do it. And those movies, she usually has one or two scenes, and it's just her showing up and going, Bond, you suck. I hate you. Hope you die on this mission, buddy. But I have (laughs) to send you because reasons. Right. I wish I didn't have to. Yes. Uh, Calling him a sexist dinosaur or a blunt instrument. And she's so funny. She is funny. I watched Casino Royale in a theater recently. And like, you know, and and that movie's older. And again, she only has like a couple scenes in it. And I think everybody knows her most famous lines. Who's going to a specific Bond screening. But like it just she still brought the house down. Uh huh. But she sucks in this. This character sucks. And it's. It's depressing. Bring her back. Let her do another one. Let her this give her a mulligan. You know, we always said we we love listening to her voice. She just has a really amazing voice. And I would listen to her do, you know, almost anything, you know, read the phone book, whatever. But it is hard in this. She's just not as funny as you'd hope. But I mean, her voice is still pleasant. And I would watch anything <laughs> for Dench, but I won't watch that. Yeah, she's, of course, in, you know, the importance of being earnest and Pride and Prejudice, both of which she kind of is a scold. And both of which you walk away going, wow, Judy Dench. Yeah, she's so good. I mean, she's been in a ton of things that I've seen. But uh, one of the things that I know we heard her voice the most on was, of course, we had that King Singers album, Kid Stuff, that she narrates mm-hmm. that you guys listened to a ton when you were little. And I listened to some, too, when I was younger. Yep. And she's still acting at a uh, time of recording. I mean, she yep. was just uh, I think. Did she get a nomination for Belfast last year? I, I think she did. I believe so. Yeah. Which is not a. Don't don't bother with that movie. But, you know, it shows that she's still working. Yep. Our third cow is Jennifer Tilly as Grace. We recognized her voice as Celia in Monsters, Inc., of course. Where she's great. Yeah, she is great. So much of this cast, it's like they're terrible in this. It's not their fault. Right. One of the things that we felt about this movie is Every almost everything in it reminds us of a better movie we wish we were watching instead. Yep. Including listening to her voice and going, I wish I was watching Monsters, Inc. But not everything she's done is good. She's also the Madame Leota in that terrible Haunted Mansion movie. (laughs) Well, (laughs) these things happen. It's true. (laughs) Also, I don't know, man, I might watch that over Home on the Range if I had to. I really think I'd probably pick that. And it's not good. I'm not saying it's good, but I I don't know. The thing about Home on the Range is it doesn't actually make me angry. And I feel like I remember that Haunted Mansion making me really frustrated. But it's been a long time since I've seen that one, too. So I don't know. I don't know. Last time I saw it, I, I thought it was just dumb. Like, I don't know. It's fine. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's Eddie Murphy. It's directed by the director of The Lion King, oddly. <laughs> that is weird. Cuba Gooding Jr. as Buck the Horse. 
he's done a ton of things, of course, like Jerry Maguire and Men of Honor. Interestingly, I haven't, there wasn't anything in his list of, in his filmography that I was like, oh yes, I definitely specifically remember him from that. But I mean, his name and his face were very familiar, but yeah, nothing really stood out to me. I always think of Jerry Maguire first. He, of course, won the Academy Award for that. And it launched, I mean, he already had a a good career, um, but it kind of launched a specific career where in that movie, which is a comedy, he's playing a very annoying guy. But the movie is structured around that in a way that I think makes him more... I don't know. It's like the movie knows he's annoying. The whole joke is that Jerry Maguire is this sports agent. All his clients leave him except for Cuba Gooding Jr., who sucks and he hates working with him. And so it works because he's, you know, bouncing off of other characters and and being pushed back against his worst impulses. And after that, there were a a lot of people were like, okay, people like when this guy is annoying and there's nothing else that made that movie or performance successful. Just him being a big blowhard works. And sure enough, that's what he's doing in this movie. He's doing horse Cuba Gooding Jr. Yep. It's not great. Uh, as as for Mr. Gooding Jr. himself, I think he can. He's an actor who can be used very well. He, you know, has done some great stuff. Also, I have to call it Boys in the Hood, of course, uh, or uh, playing O.J. Simpson in uh, People versus O.J. Simpson. But he sometimes he's extremely annoying. And in this case, he's extremely annoying. Now, our villain, uh, Randy Quaid as Alameda Slim. Of course, I mostly remember him from Independence Day. He's actually my least favorite character in Independence Day, but still memorable. <laughs> he saved uh, he saved us. He, he beat the aliens. It was him. <sighs> I know, <laughs> but he's so annoying when he does it. <laughs> and of course, most famously, he thinks that there is he's a legit crazy person. He thinks that there is a group of people called the Star Whackers who are killing uh, famous movie stars. And he thinks that they're out to get him. And he decided to counter them with a uh, pop song called Star Whackers to, to blow up their spot. They haven't gotten him yet. <laughs> Crazy thing is, for all these good actors who do bad, I think that bad actor Randy Quaid is kind of good at this. It, it is actually true, you know, having he does a pretty good villain in this. Charles Hayde is Lucky Jack, the unlucky rabbit um, who has a peg leg because he's lost his lucky rabbit's foot. I'm not really familiar with anything he's been in. Me neither. Estelle Harris is here very briefly as Audrey the chicken. So, you know, the voice of Mrs. Potato Head again and the old lady bear in Brother Bear. I'm so glad we could say she's the voice of Mrs. Potato Head. Like Estelle Harris deserves one. Give her a win. Yes. I mean, she is funny. Her her character is funny in this. The stuff that the chicken does, do, that did make me, you know, amused. But it's a very, very minor role. <laughs> yeah, I can't even remember anything specifically she does other than like freak out. Oh, I guess, of course, there's a trailer line about who would ever want to eat a chicken. Yep. Which only Estelle Harris could make that line even come close to working for sure. <laughs> She's good at like being a character that is kind of stupid and yet funny, if that makes sense. 
Maybe ignorant is better than stupid. She knows the character is funny. The character itself doesn't know that it's funny. Right. Yeah, it's it's very she gets she gets it across even for this little chicken character. We have Carol Cook as Pearl Gessner, the uh, lady who owns Little Patch of Heaven. She was in a lot of TV shows and things like one offs and whatever. That's mainly the only things I ever saw her in. Nothing really stood out. I know Carol Cook from being the female lead in the very funny movie, The Incredible Mr. Limpet. Oh, is she in that? I missed that. Yes, she's Bessie Limpet. Oh, that is a good one. Obviously, I was skimming her list too fast. Brief, brief uh, cameo by Patrick Warburton as the horse Patrick (laughs) that they basically just named after him because it's such a small bit. But, you know, Kronk himself really makes you go, man, I wish Patrick Warburton was in a lot more of this movie. It's true. Like, why couldn't he have been Buck? He physically runs out of the movie and you're like, come back, please. (laughs) Uh, Steve Buscemi as Wesley, who is like our one of our secondary villains or tertiary villain. I don't know. They wrote this character specifically for him. They were like, well, that makes sense because it looks a lot like him. Yeah, I guess. And it's like, why? (laughs) Why is this character even in the movie? Uh, I mean, I think Buscemi's pretty committed to his three lines that he has. And (laughs) I mean, I love Buscemi. He's he's definitely like I I just love any actor that's like ugly and weird, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) See also Willem Dafoe. I I really like him. I I think he's an enjoyable presence in almost any movie. But when he popped up in this, I was like, what? Why? We're 60 minutes in. (laughs) Stop introducing characters. Uh, For Disney, of course, he was also in Monsters, Inc. as Randall. Oh, yeah. Do you think they just grabbed the Monsters, Inc. actors like while they were in the booth? Like, hey, while you're reading for this good movie. I mean, especially for Steve Buscemi. It's like, here, do me a couple of lines one day and you're done. Though Jennifer Lilly would have had to do more, but she didn't do a lot in Monsters, Inc. So maybe it balanced out, right? (laughs) After all, let's not forget very dramatic music plays. Monsters, Inc. was being worked on during (laughs) (laughs) 9-11. Came out shortly after Uh, 9-11. I know Steve Buscemi is a good actor, but the first couple of things I saw him in, he was so creepy and slimy that... It kind of turned me off him from the beginning because the first things I saw him in were Desperado and Fargo. And I like Desperado and I don't like Fargo, but I don't like his characters in either of them at all. Yeah, I like Fargo, but he is playing a horrible, horrible person. Oh, yeah. Just absolute scum. And in in Desperado, he's just so slimy. Yeah. And I've seen him in a ton of things. And like every time he would come on the screen, I'd be like, oh, no, not him again. (laughs) But again, he's not terrible. He's in Escape from L.A. Even that role's not that bad. It's pretty short. I love him in that. Again, I love him in everything. How could we forget? I recently revisited his uh, earth shattering, groundbreaking performance in Spy Kids 2. Well, I will say that was the first time I'd seen him not be a villain was Spy Kids 2 and then 3. And I was like, I guess he's okay. (laughs) He's totally wasted in in 3. I mean, that movie's just a... Oh, yeah, it's just a little... My brother and I recently rewatched the first three Spy Kids movies, the original trilogy, if you will. Those first two hold up 
pretty darn well. And Buscemi's really, really funny in the second one. Yeah. I, I'm mostly kidding. Obviously, those movies are like silly kids movies, but uh, I'm kidding about being an earth shattering performance. But he is really good in it. And he's pitched perfectly for like, I'm in a Spy Kids movie, you know? Right. Charles Dennis as Rico, the bounty hunter, has done a lot of video game voice work. Really? So he's like one of the few who's basically a voice actor. (laughs) Oh, I've just uh, looked up who he is, of course. (laughs) He is Counselor Elliot Swan in Doom 3. Of course, we all remember who that is. (laughs) And by we all, you mean those of us in this family. (laughs) (laughs) Super memorable character, Counselor Swan. Yeah, whatever. Good for him. Mark Walton is both Barry and Bob, the uh, longhorn cows that follow the our main cows for a while. And I only bring him up, really, because we're going to hear his voice again in Chicken Little and in Bolt. Oh, boy, he was their good luck charm. So, yeah, he's coming back. Sam Levine or Levine. I'm not sure how that one's pronounced because you could go either way plays all three of the Willie brothers. And he was one of the movie's writers. (laughs) Yeah. And watching him in the making of his voice pretty much just sounds like that. So it's very really pretty much. (laughs) I mean, he he plays it up like he doesn't, you know, do all the exaggerated readings, but he does just talk like this. He's like, yes, hello, I'm Sam Levine. Here are my contributions. So it's very clear to me that they were like, <laughs> hey, you've got a funny you voice. You have a funny voice. <laughs> yeah, that, that is pretty funny. And that's some classic Disney casting. It's like, hey, we got a guy on the lot who sounds silly. He's a character now. I don't know if there's anybody else you really care to bring up. The only other one I have any interest in, it'll take one second, the former governor of Texas, Dorothy Ann Richards uh, is the saloon owner, Annie. That's just weird. Just a weird (laughs) thing to do. Yeah, it is kind of weird. Former governor of Texas and not actor in anything else, to be clear. (laughs) Well, we got to talk about it. Yeah, this movie starts with the uh, Walt Disney Pictures logo coming in as a branding iron. (laughs) And then a song that has both a pee joke and a poop joke. Oh, I wasn't keeping track of that. <laughs> nope, but if you because it, it's you you can't really hear that part because of all the wacky stuff going on. There's so much going on in this opening. I couldn't even figure out what the song was called, but what it's called is in parentheses, you ain't and then home on the range. It's not the home on the range song you'd expect, but it is basically called home on the range. Mm hmm. So it's our title song. A powerful tribute to 9-11. We do meet some of our characters that we won't really get much interaction with until later, like Lucky Jack, the the peg leg rabbit who just keeps falling into scrape after scrape after snake. I mean, scrape. And we basically get introduced to Maggie as she's being taken from her original farm where she was to Little Patch of Heaven because all of the cows from her farm were stolen away by rustlers. I think it may even mention Alameda Slim in that first part, but 
It really goes by fast. It does. I wrote it down because I remembered that he was the guy, which you didn't for a while, because why would you? Yeah. Should be noted that she's introduced with an extremely disgusting joke. Yep. The reason why the movie's PG. Yeah, that we won't even repeat here. But uh, it's just again, it's like, oh, okay, we're just doing DreamWorks stuff like we're we're just doing doing Shrek humor. Which is why they got a DreamWorks guy to be the main director for it, I think. I also don't like that one of the first things Maggie says as she's talking about all the bad stuff that happened to her is like, just remember, no matter how bad things get, someone has it worse. And I'm like, well, that's a pretty lousy moral, especially the way she's saying it, which is a very mean spirited like when all you know, because she's like looking at Lucky Jack getting hurt and stuff. And it's like, you know what cheers me up when I'm feeling bad? Watching other people suffer. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it just this movie has no like charm or Disney magic in it or lesson or happiness. It doesn't grab you very quick and make you care about the characters like it should. No, the beginning of this movie is like the wrong end of a magnet to me. <laughs> it's just. Nothing I want to happen in a in a movie, really. Yep. So we get and get introduced to the small farm, little patch of heaven with the little patch of heaven song. Pretty much immediately. Yeah. It's like boom, boom, boom. Kind of gives you whiplash. Yep. Where they sing about how great their little farm is. And they call it a, a dairy farm, but there's only two other cows there. So it doesn't seem like much of a dairy farm. It's more of just a small one person Pearl, who she's got her farm she likes. And she's a crazy person. She's a complete lunatic. Yeah, she's kind of a crazy old lady who all of her animals are her family. And we meet there the other two cows, Grace and Mrs. Calloway, um, who they sometimes also call Mrs. C. And Mrs. Calloway, she's the one in charge. She runs the farm. And Grace is here because they need someone who can be tone deaf. Yeah, and she's also... <laughs> Kind of a hippie, like, you know, let's all get in touch with our feelings and they can't decide on what the joke is with her. It's though, true. Because sometimes she's that sometimes she's stupid. Sometimes she's actually smart, but everyone underestimates her. Right. And other times she's just tone deaf. <laughs> yeah. Again, I think it's because. They added this character to the movie purely like for plot machinations. Yeah. They didn't have like, oh, this is who this character is. And this is why we want them in the movie. And I thought it seemed like maybe so the the farmer that used to own Maggie is like Abner or something. I think Abner Dixon, because it was the Dixon farm. I thought he was like giving Maggie to Pearl, but maybe he's selling her. I don't know. Um, it's not clear. The the interactions between the humans and then the animals is weird. It's it's difficult to define, right? Yes. And it's once again, are they animals or are they people? Mm -hmm. Like there's some of that going on because when she's, you know, obviously the sheriff comes up on the horse and he's Buck. talking about yeah, on Buck. Thank you. And he's, you know, you're gonna you're about to lose the farm. You're not making any money. And he's like, Maybe you could do the thing that farmers do, <laughs> you know, like you could sell a few of your animals. Yeah. Or, you know, we've also seen that she uh, takes the eggs after they've hatched and stuff. So it's like maybe you could sell some of the animal stuff that yeah. maybe you could do your job as a farmer. And she's <laughs> like, no, I couldn't possibly. And 
I'm sorry, you know, this is us being a little bit heartless, I think, but it's like I ate a burger the day we watched this. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like a cow yeah. dying is isn't really a tragedy to me. A, a chicken dying mm-hmm. isn't really a, tra- you know, who like, would eat uh, a chicken? Uh, us. <laughs> us. Us a lot. <laughs> That's like, <laughs> it's like you're on a farm. Like, this is what a farm does. Right. This is why you exist. I mean, you do have one row of vegetables that just gets destroyed over and over again. Over and over. But she needs $750 to pay the mortgage, rent, something. <laughs> and if she doesn't, in three days, she's going to lose her farm. Oh, no. And the other thing about this farm is that there's so many characters on it. There's even more characters than we've mentioned. There's like four pigs, at least maybe five, three piglets and a father pig at the very least. Yeah. And there's also a goose and a goat There's the chicken. There's the three chicks. There's multiple chickens. Yeah. And the rooster. Yes. And there's really only, I guess there's three scenes total with these characters. And it's not enough for 15 characters to each have a defined bit or joke. Like, I don't know what the goose's joke is supposed to be. I don't know what most of the pigs are supposed to be doing. You know, the goat is just grumpy, which isn't enough of a... Like, that's the thing. It has all these characters who should be funny, but it's also so rushed You don't get a sense for any of them. The beginning does feel very rushed. You really need to sit with these characters for a little bit longer, get their, you know, get their deal, actually care about them before it's like, oh, no, we're going to lose the farm. And then all of a sudden, oh, all the cows are going to go off to try to figure out how to get some money. But like they literally are just two seconds later, it feels like, oh, here, we're leaving now. And it's like, but wait, um why what's the plan where did we get this idea uh it's like no no we got to get this movie going (laughs) we shouldn't start with maggie we should start with the farm it should be like toy story where which also has a lot of funny characters but you actually get each character's joke yep and we establish their status quo and then this interloper comes in and starts causing chaos and becomes more popular than the person running the farm like it is it's a very Toy Story-esque thing, but rushed and bad and dumb. Yeah, you you un- you feel it. You connect with the characters in the beginning of Toy Story and it works. But here in Home on the Range, it just goes too fast and you don't really get a chance to live with them at all in their, as you said, status quo. It's like they're trying to do it with the song Little Patch of Heaven. And usually I'm like, put in a song. Let's, you know, that's how you fast track. But it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, which is something they talk about in the movie is they're like, we really wanted Alan Menken to like set the tone with his songs and kind of it seemed like the idea was that the songs would be not funny to kind of help set the stage for the movie that is funny. Hmm. But then also they get this lyricist, Glenn Slater, who has all these hacky jokes. I mentioned like the the pee jokes and everything, but like little patch of heaven has all these dumb lines, like even the Skeeters and the fleas say, may I thanks and please. <laughs> and, you know, the yodeling song, which is one of the more successful songs, just because a villain song is always fun, has like your chaps are labeled XXXXL. Like, I don't know. It's just and the 10 gallon underpants or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. 
So if that's what they said they wanted to do, but it doesn't feel like that. Uh, anyway, Maggie burps a bunch and it's still gross. Mm-hmm. Gets the chicks or pigs or something burping with her. Yes, this is where not just this, but, you know, it definitely feels like they're trying to be like, well, we're going to do we're going to out DreamWorks DreamWorks with this one. <laughs> and I'm sure Pixar as well, like Pixar would have somewhat more adult jokes, you know, for relative values of such things. So then they decide they're going to go to the county fair. And it's yet another weird thing, because what they set up here is the county fair thing. And then after this, they're like, nope, we're going to go bounty hunting. And then they're like, and we're going to follow this chuck wagon to the, you know, to this cattle drive. And then, oh, no, we're out of the cattle drive. Now we're going to go to this like. You know, normally with this type of road movie, certainly with a Western, what you do is you set up the goal in the beginning and then the movie's about getting to that goal. Right. In this one, the goal changes a lot. Yeah. Again, you never get the feel for a status quo before it changes. Every scene feels like it was from, dare I say, a different screenplay. (laughs) They do establish Grace's terrible singing here, where she's like singing coming around the mountain or while they're walking along. And I had forgotten that that was an important plot point. The first time she does it, I was just like, I guess that's her joke. Ha ha, whatever. And then when they do it again, I'm like, this has got to be a thing. Because later she's singing Home on the Range the actual original Home on the Range song very badly. So I was like, I don't I didn't remember why it was a thing. It had completely slipped my mind how the villain does his work when they're in town and they find out about the bounty on Alameda Slim being exactly seven hundred and fifty dollars, which is how much money they need. That's why they decide to go bounty hunting. There is a funny scene where Rico blows into town. He is the famous best bounty hunter, as we are told. And when he's coming in, your brother was like, he's the villain, right? Because the way the music is, the way it looks, the way he talks, he's kind of gravelly down here, kind of like deep voice. (laughs) And it's like, oh, no, wait, he's the bounty hunter. But in fact, later, as we'll find out, he is a secret bad guy. So, you know, it's not a very good twist when people can just guess by your uh, ambiance you put with your character what's going on with your secret bad guy. Yep. Although in fairness, he's in this movie so little and there's so much other stuff happening that by the time we got to the reveal, we had all kind of forgotten. (laughs) Yeah. Which isn't to the movie's credit. It's not like we'd forgotten And we were like, oh, maybe he's not the bad guy. It was legitimately we were like, oh, yeah, I guess they have to finish that thing that they introduced. (laughs) And again, like it can't just be Buck the horse. He also has to have a dog friend. Yeah. Rusty the dog. These are these belong to the sheriff, this dog and this horse. Right. And the sheriff's a character. And there's Rico. And, you know, we have the whole bit of saloon business that goes by so quick. Oh, yeah. Just because it's like, I guess we have to have something happen in a saloon. It's a Western. It just can't get a handle on any of them. Like, I don't know the dog's name. I don't know what joke the dog is supposed to have. It's just like, and he's also there. You know, one thing we talked about with Emperor's New Groove, which is obviously a more successful comedy than this in so many ways. But one of the things is it's built around four characters. 
Right. And, you know, there are you can certainly have more of an ensemble comedy, even in the Disney world. Again, we mentioned Toy Story, but like it's just way, way too much that they expect you to kind of remember and care about. Because even in Toy Story, it's really just about two characters. Yep. Buzz and Woody. Everyone else is there for flavor and they're pretty simple. But it would be like if they got to Sid's house and the abomination toys like all talked and all had a distinct character, you know? Yeah. Rather than just kind of being a mass of like roller bob and the, you know, whatever. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there is also, uh, uh, in fairness, there's a joke I enjoyed around here. It's actually a little before this, I believe, but who cares? Not me. <laughs> Which I kind of like the vultures hanging around <laughs> and having like, they're like false alarm. Yeah. Grace isn't dying. Her singing's just bad. That's okay. That's okay. But again, uh, in contrast, Emperor's New Groove, I talked there about like they don't overdo any joke in this. Mm -hmm. They do very few jokes more than once. We have to listen to Grace's horrible singing quite a bit. Yeah, it happens a lot. Too much. They really want to make sure you get it that she's very bad at it and she's tone deaf. But you really don't need that many opportunities to hear it and get it. There is a kind of a funny scene where Maggie and Calloway start fighting when they're in the town and they get into it. But it's like not important. <laughs> None of it's important. Eventually, it's not. Eventually, as you said, they're going to follow the chuck wagon to get to the cattle drive. Because if they're at a cattle drive, that's where hopefully Alameda Slim will come and steal the cows. So they're going to be able to capture him. And we pass Maggie's farm here, which is the one attempt at, I don't know, making Maggie a sympathetic or quote unquote human character. Yeah. Uh, and we see the farm has been sold to Mr. Y. Odell. Mm -hmm. Do you get it? Are you paying attention? Yes, it's very bold type. And uh, we see her old like barn or stall or whatever with all of her awards for she was a show cow. <laughs> yeah, we haven't even mentioned that because who cares? Yeah, <laughs> but there's there's way too much to keep track of. But but yeah, they get to the cattle drive. It's and she doesn't act like a show cow. I mean, not to again think about this too much. We could we could really burn some time doing that. But like. Why is the show cow the one who's like gross and a slob? You would think this would be the fancy one. Yeah, the fancy show cow versus the down to earth country girl. Yeah. Which then it might make sense why Judy Dench has a British accent <laughs> because she's from like somewhere else. She's like very posh, very refined. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. Now you, <laughs> you once again, you have written a better movie already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's I mean, there's a ton of good ideas in this, almost none of which are executed well because there's too many. It's too overstuffed. But like slob versus snob comedy. Classic. I yeah. mean, it's so easy to just do that. And they even got two good actors for that. Yep. I don't know. The only thing I can think of is that a show cow is going to be a large cow. Mm hmm. Right. And Roseanne made fat jokes at her own expense. Yeah, that yeah. was her own. That was like her thing. So that's why they decided the fat cow needed to be her. I don't know. It's it's one of those things. It's like, yeah, I can see ways it might have been. <laughs> we also introduce an unfunny thing where 
if you take Mrs. Calloway's hat off, she gets. I mean, there's like 800 things that we introduce during this scene. There are a ton of things. That's right. That is why they get into it. <laughs> I there's forgot. So, this is the most dense movie. Of all. I just wrote that they that they have a fight. Uh, I mean, it, none of it matters. <laughs> none of it matters. All right. But then we get to the cattle drive and the cows. Are all like ooh, girls, whatever. Dumb joke. Yes, dumb, dumb, dumb. dumb jokes. But of course, the rustlers do come to attack this cattle drive, and it's Alameda Slim and his nephews are called the Willie Brothers, though their names are not Willie. <laughs> Again, that's a holdover from another script, as I believe I mentioned. Yep. I gotta be honest, definitely my favorite part of this movie is Slim and the Willies. I think that they're not, you know, the best Disney villains ever, but they're funny enough. Yeah. And we spend enough time with them that you get a handle on their deal. And I guess I'm just a sucker for the cackling maniac. Like, I think the yodeling thing is somewhat funny, and I think it's really funny, actually, that he has this whole vendetta against farmers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like... I don't know. That to me is just a funny idea that he's specifically like, I will destroy. I'm fine with this character. Put him in villainous, I say. So I had forgotten, as I said, about the yodeling. So when he's singing his villain song, I'm like, oh, it's, you know, he's he's got a nice villain song so far. And then when he breaks into the yodeling and the colors all change to the silly, um, bright Uh, flashing colors and he's like because all the cows are hypnotized and his clothes turn to like glitter and that actually amused me i was kind of cracking up about the fact that his deal is that his yodeling hypnotizes the cows so they'll just follow him like the pied piper wherever he wants them to go so i put that my favorite scene is probably this yodeling song where he we first see them taking this herd of cows by favorite scene that makes it sound like i really really liked it (laughs) i only kind of liked it (laughs) it's such a bad ripoff of a pink elephants type segment it's almost insulting because it's so like they just copy and paste the cows Mm -hmm. and make them you know using the digital animation and make them different colors it's not like they, you know, animated different cows doing different things. There's just like a lot of them on screen. It's just cow patterns. Yeah, it's a it's a very lazy version of this scene. But I I will say, like, I totally can see it being your favorite scene in this movie. And it's the scene I remembered the most from watching this as a kid. Yeah. Like the one scene I really specifically remembered was Alameda Slim hypnotizing all the cows might be in part because I had a fear of hypnotism, as you alluded to earlier. Yep. Uh, and and still find it somewhat unsettling. Never really did in this. It's too <laughs> silly even for me. But uh, also, I, I was a little older at this point. But, yeah, you know, whatever. It's a uh, it's yeah, it's a colorful. It's a decent villain song. Yep. It's just nice to have a villain in the modern era. We're so starved for a Disney <laughs> villain. We're like, say, Alameda Slim. What a commanding performance. And of course, the Grace is immune to his yodeling hypnotism because she's tone deaf. She's shocked that all her friends are busting a moo on April 2. <laughs> she does manage to stop the other two cows from going along with the herd. 
Uh, so they are able to then follow later to try to catch Slim. And Buck the horse is also chasing Slim. And there's, you know, there's stuff with that. And every time you see Buck, you just sigh. Yeah, there's um, the thing is, it's like there's there's stuff going on um, with <laughs> other characters, but it's just not important, right? <laughs> I've never heard you less enthused reading a synopsis, and I totally agree. We what should just say, say, and then a bunch, <laughs> and then a bunch of stuff happens. The end. Like <laughs> I'm down for that. We do get once once Alameda Slim and his nephews get to their destination, which is an old mine, the Echo Mine. We get a little bit more from them, like you said, what his deal is. I felt like I kind of missed it. I'm like, why is he upset at farmers? I also missed it. I was hoping you could explain that. (laughs) Well, I looked, I looked it up. And what I think I found is here. Let me see if I can actually pull up the quote I found. Give me just a moment. He had once been a talented farmhand, but had been repeatedly fired because his employers hated his yodeling. So he's getting his revenge on all the farmers by yodeling their cows away. And then he dresses up as Yancey Odell, Yodel, and buys their farms after they have to sell them with the money he makes rustling the cows. <laughs> I think that's his plan. That's his plan. Yep. No wonder both of our brains were like, no, I refuse to retain this information <laughs> about the farmhand specifically. Right. And then apparently, originally, his plot was going to be he's collecting all the cows so he can march on Washington and be made president. They should have just done that. Just make it as silly as possible. But they were like, no, that's too silly. <laughs> no, <laughs> just but what you did isn't. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It, he should have been fired for something more sinister it feels like because especially because if you have a farmhand who can magically control the cows to do anything you want even if you don't like yodeling you're still gonna be like yeah go for it man that's the best farmhand of all time you can fire everyone else and pay him all of their salary (laughs) right also yodeling sounds nice I know. Like, what's the problem with yodeling Uh, it should be noted that uh, this herd they stole which is the last place that they need to get other than little patch of heaven was was owned by Big Mike Donald. And they make sure to say oh, Big yes. Mike Donald had a farm. Yep. But not anymore. Just just we can't forget that this movie is a comedy. <laughs> and I think this is about here. There's there's some more stuff with Buck, blah, blah, blah. The the whole uh, desert. Well, not the whole desert, but the area where our cow heroes are floods. Yes, there's a sudden rain, a flash flood. We do then when because everybody's sad because they're, you know, they're not going to be able to catch up with the cows and catch the rustler. And they're like, oh, it's not going to work out. And so that's when we get the sad song. Will the sun ever shine again? Never forget. As we see Pearl packing her stuff on the farm and like being sad about all of her animal friends and her the auction is coming up on Thursday which like the days go by really fast because all of a sudden in like just a little while in the movie it's going to be here those three days go by really fast let me just say 
But then, of course, the rain finally ends. And there's also during this part, there's an attempt at a third act breakup that makes no real sense at all. But then it's not like these characters have been defined enough to make sense before this. But I can't even remember the flimsy justification for it. I just know there was, you know, uh, uh, Calloway's like, we're going to go home. And I was like, why? And you're like, because it's the second act. (laughs) I'm like, because this is the part of the movie where we have to have them break up um, because they've got no hope. And so Lucky Jack then that comes along and he ends up telling them about Echo Mine. And they're like, oh, that's where we need to go. Lucky Jack, who I think it's a funny idea. But like mm-hmm. everything else, the they unlucky, don't lucky rabbit. Yeah, they don't do enough with him. But the yeah, the rabbit who had his lucky rabbit's foot cut off. And I said to you again, like writing a better version of this movie, when he is obviously involved in helping save the day at the end somewhat, it shouldn't be that his peg leg gets put in the, you know, he, he gets used as a switch for the train it should be that he's catastrophically unlucky in such a way that it accidentally helps, right? Oh, yeah, that would be hilarious. That would be like the Emperor's New Groove finale where, you know... What are the odds of that trapdoor leading me out here? <laughs> Exactly, where there's just like silly stuff happening and it happens to lead to characters being where they want to be and that's funny. You know, that would be your we did not order a giant trampoline moment. Yeah. There's so much you could do with this and they really don't. Other than that opening scene with him where there's some slapstick and a teeny tiny bit here. Yeah. There's not nearly enough unluckiness for for Lucky Jack. I mean, I do like his joke where he's like, that happens all the time. I mean, that's yes. kind of funny. But I think part of it is because they instead have to deal with this stupid Buck character who's literally, again, a holdover from another movie. And it's like, dump him, keep Lucky Jack. Make Lucky Jack their sidekick on this story, which was something that they, like when they talk about this character, they're like, He's the sidekick who helps the cows. Yeah. But he doesn't much other than being like, hey, there's mine. Go go to the next place. Stop having a second act breakup. And they go, OK, we will now. And we have while they're I'm pretty sure while they're like traveling, there is when we get uh, like a reprise of the home on the range song, the you ain't home on the range song. Yes. So it should be noted that 50 minutes into the movie, we have we're going after Alameda Slim. We know where he is. We know why we're going there. And this is where finally Calloway and Calloway and Maggie make their agreement where it's like, here's the deal. If you help me catch Alameda Slim, which I want to do not to save the farm, but because I just hate that guy in exchange, I will leave your farm because you don't like me and I'll go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, finally, we have a movie. <laughs> genuinely this is the first time i felt like right i understand the stakes of this movie here's where we're going now (laughs) yes just in time for it to be over (laughs) not quite but yeah here's where and here's where finally we meet you know mr wesley the guy who owns the train and is actually paying for alameda slim to wrestle the cows i also think even though it's a pretty wild joke to put into a kid's movie, the uh, club bouncer, who's the big buffalo. Junior. I think that stuff is fairly funny. It is. I I do kind of like him. I especially like, even though it's really the tip off that we're thinking too much about DreamWorks here, 
Maggie calling him stallion of the sin moron is pretty good. Calling Buck that. Yeah, uh, it's not great, but by the standards of this movie, it is. I think it got like half a chuckle out of me. Yep. And uh, the cows make a plan and manage to actually catch Slim in a minecart, Alameda Slim. And, you know, there's all kinds of wacky business in the mine with the cart and chasing. And we even get the goofy holler in here. This whole big chase scene back and forth, back and forth. Eventually, everybody ends up like outside and it's like, oh, Rico is here. Rico, the bounty hunter. Yay. He'll take Alameda Slim in for the money. And it's like, oh, no, wait, he's been working for Alameda Slim the whole time. So after this whole like we got him captured. No, everybody's released and we have to like start over again. And again, it's because we still have Buck in this movie just to eat time, I guess, and get us to the minimum viable length of a movie. Yeah. And so now we have to have this whole impetus for Buck. And it's like because he was he's been hero worshiping Rico this whole time. And now he finds out Rico is actually a bad guy. So he has to have his moment to fight off the bad guys, which is beautifully realized by him immediately turning on Rico and saying, I guess I finally figured out who the good guys were. You know, the classic yeah. tell down show, even to the extent that I care about anything in this movie, I care about Buck the least and the whole Buck Rico thing. And I would just cut it and have more stuff with the cows, you know, actually yeah. flesh out those characters. But I did want to note before we got too far away, I am picking the chase in Echo Mine as my favorite scene. Yeah, basically any of the Alameda Slim scenes I'm OK with. I'm not going to say I was laughing out loud at them, but I was like, this is sort of pleasantly inoffensive yeah oh and i just realized i I didn't actually write down when it happens i also quite like the moment where we find out one of the nephews has been sitting on the couch with his head in front of patch of heaven on the map and his and the patch of heaven is in the exact shape of his head yes and i thought that was that was pretty silly that the patch of heaven farm is the exact shape of his silly head. That's the first scene in the mind. But this scene, this chase, it looks nice. It's pretty kinetic. There's some good use of caps and CGI on the minecarts itself that makes it exciting. There's some funny stuff happening just in terms of like basic slapstick, which even these hacks can't really mess up. <laughs> this is this is probably the best action scene. Oh, yeah. Rather than like the topical uh, humor or the dialogue based humor. And yet, even despite that, there is a genuine joke I like from my main man himself, Steve Buscemi. I like when he's watching all the craziness and he just goes, I gave up clown college for this. Yeah. <laughs> just that like specific little like you get a glimpse into what Mr. Wesley's all about. Yes. So, you know, I'm not, again, much like your favorite scene, it's really my least, least favorite scene. <laughs> but uh, I think it's, you know, this movie could have had some more of that it could have been more slapsticky, more. I don't know. That's it's a good kind of fast pace. It's it's something in a movie that has a lot of nothing. And as you say, it, it probably should be the climax of the movie. But now we have to have some. It kind of feels like it. But then we have to have it's a false climax. We have some more fighting, as you, I said, with Buck fighting the bad guys. And then the cows are going to steal the train engine and drive it 
to patch a heaven because it's Thursday already and Alameda Slim has gone to the auction to try to buy Patch of Heaven because he's, of course, trying to buy all the land in this area. And this is the last piece he doesn't own. It's also, I, you know, they don't really call this out. It's not like an intentional joke. But it's funny that Alameda Slim, like, bankrupted every other farmer. Yeah. And Pearl just is, as mentioned, such a bad farmer. She got bankrupted completely by her own self. Right. <laughs> She's just absolute garbage of a farmer. And we have to assume <laughs> that a couple years after this, she's bankrupt again. Yeah, I do kind of again, back to the liking the some of the jokes with Slim and his nephews, the joke where they can't recognize him when he puts on the hat and glasses that he disguises himself as Mr. Odell. And they're like, what do you do with Uncle Slam? And then he takes him off and he's like, look. It's me. I put on the hat. <laughs> I put on the glasses. Where'd you go? Who are you? And then one of the brothers puts it on too. And they're like, ah, and it just, it's a funny, stupid little joke, but it is one of the more amusing ones. Yeah, it's a funny idea. They do it too much, I think. But I do agree that the the part that makes it work is one of the other brothers putting it on. And them yes. not recognizing him either. Because <laughs> they're triplets. <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like, yes, conceptually, that's a really funny joke. In execution, they they kind of drag it out and it loses some of its punch. But I agree with you. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, this, it's fine. And another joke that I think is OK <laughs> that involves Alameda Slim is I kind of like when the cows get off the train mm-hmm. and he's like, you. And then, of course, they have the high noon showdown because you have to have that in a Western movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it is inherently it's just kind of a funny image for, you know, this big old cowboy's arch nemesis to be some cows. Yeah. And they have to put cotton in their ears so they don't get hypnotized by him. By the way, I keep forgetting to say this. So even though there's no way to artfully segue, I'm just going to say it now. The backgrounds in this movie look great. They really put a lot of intention into the colors and they uh, actually went to Tucson, Arizona. Yeah. Where Grandma Becky lives. And, you know, they they really tried to set this movie in the Mojave Desert and be like people think of the desert as just brown. But you have like the beautiful red rocks and like blue cactus and all this stuff. They also went back and watched a bunch of the old Disney Western shorts like the Pecos Bill, the Johnny Appleseed, some of those tried to use some of those design ideas in it. I think it's a pretty good looking movie. In some places, it's very cheap. Yes. And you can tell (laughs) that the directors like. You know, we're not dealing with a Chris Sanders or a Musker and Clements here who has strong visual ideas. Yeah. But I do like the use of color and it's what you want for a comedy. You know, you want bright, colorful silliness. Yes. A little abstracted off of the real world. Yes. Uh, Hey, you know what? Ripping off the classic Disney animators, some of the best to ever do it. It's a pretty good place to take your inspiration from. It's true. One thing about the design that I don't like as much. So, of course... The cows, you know, they walk on their feet, but you got to sometimes you just got to have hands when you're doing characters. Right. Right. So with the cows, they make their tails kind of do the work for hands. Yes. And it doesn't always work for me, especially (laughs) like when one of the cows uses her tail to like like you're throwing your arm around your friend's shoulders 
So she uses her <laughs> tail across the other cow's shoulders. I'm like, that doesn't work as well. You don't get the right vibe from that because it's her behind in the other cow's face. You know, <laughs> it just doesn't feel like friendship. <laughs> and this, some of that stuff I just couldn't get over very well. Yeah, cows, not nimble characters, not good but at I doing mean, things. Th- think about they in Emperor's New Groove, Cusco is a llama. He frequently uses his front legs as right. hands, sort of. But uh, I think that in some ways it's like they're trying to balance realism with silliness. And sometimes it just doesn't work. The tail thing didn't bother me, but I'll tell you something that did for some reason, which is Lucky Jack offers them. I believe he like cooks a scorpion. He's like, hey, do you guys want to eat a scorpion? And they're like, we don't eat meat. It's a professional courtesy thing. Which I think is the only mention we get in this whole movie of the fact that cows are, in fact, killed and eaten. And that's why there were so many cows in the West is to be killed and eaten largely. But I was like, cows literally can't eat meat. It's not like a choice you have to make. You can't digest meat. (laughs) And for some reason, I got to maybe just, you know, you did get kind of caught up total boredom (laughs) with everything else that was going on. I got I got caught up. With like, but you can't eat meat. Yeah, yeah. And it's not even a good line you're breaking the reality for. <laughs> well, so when they all get back to Patch of Heaven, uh, we have a whole big fight with all the animals on the farm, not just the cows. And the goat says it's time to open up a can of whoop hide. <laughs> <sighs> time to bust a move on April 2, he says. Bust a, <laughs> bust a moo on April 2, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And of course, the farm is saved. Yay! They get the reward. It pays off the debt. Not even really saved by the cows. They have a very small part in all this. But they're the ones who know to reveal that Alameda Slim is Yancey O'Dell. I almost said (laughs) Dole. Yancey Dole would like to buy up all the land in the area. (laughs) And of course, Maggie stays at the end. Then she doesn't leave. And which, yes, which is mostly an opportunity for her to have another huge belch. And And Jeb and Lucky have moved in together and they're arguing and mean. And and also, we did end up going to the county fair for some reason. And the. Well, because um, all of Pearl's animals are the best, happiest, most lovely, wonderful animals ever. So they all won blue ribbons. I think the idea is supposed to be this is how they will make money from now on is by being show animals. I think so. So that she's not ever going to get caught without enough money again, maybe. I don't trust her. The Humane Society needs to step in. (laughs) She cannot be trusted with these animals. And the movie's over. And the final shot is one of the chicks crows like a rooster. And you're like, was that a joke I was supposed to be tracking? <laughs> like, has that been happening? I think it does happen earlier. One, the one chick does something earlier. Remember, and the rooster's like, that's my boy. So it's just a, a young rooster and it makes a rooster sound. I, yep. I would yep. describe that as not a joke. <laughs> when a character just does a thing that they can do. I would describe that as not a joke. It's they. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, whatever. The movie. Yep. 
And then we have a couple of terrible credit songs. They're not covers because they're not actually in the movie otherwise. Um, but the first one is Wherever the Trail May Lead. And the second one is Anytime You Need a Friend. And the, the music for the second one I thought was quite silly, but neither of them is actually good as songs as like to just listen to. <laughs> you need a friend in me. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Normally, this is where we do sequels, spinoffs, etc. I got nothing. The only thing I wrote down for At the Parks for about a year around when this movie came out and then about a for about a year after at Disneyland at the Big Thunder Ranch where they used to have a petting zoo they actually you know, like rethemed the petting zoo to the little patch of heaven petting zoo and pearl was a meet and greet character there and then after you know in 2005 that whole area of Disneyland was shut down and changed into something else so or basically just closed down because what it is now is Galaxy's Edge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, weird. They didn't want to keep uh, Home on the Range. They thought that maybe Galaxy's Edge, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, would be a smidge more profitable and exciting and <laughs> remembered after 2004. It's true. I mean, having the petting zoo there, I kind of remember that being a thing even from when I was younger, but uh, it was not the, anything we did much but anyway so they did actually have a meet and greet character from this movie she has never been seen again (laughs) (laughs) but they say that uh some of the steaks served in one of the restaurants that year (laughs) (laughs) i did watch the uh there's a short on the home on the range dvd called a dairy tale, The Three Little Pigs. And what it is, is Mrs. Calloway is telling the story of the three little pigs um, and all the other characters are interrupting to make it silly. And that actually was more fun than the movie. <laughs> this was the era of uh, you get a little short on the DVD. Are they still doing that? Oh, sometimes. Well, Pixar does it more. Well, we don't buy all the DVDs. Luca had one anymore. Yeah, but see, that's the thing. We're not actually buying all of the blu-rays and dvds anymore because we're just mostly watching things again on disney plus but they do frequently release the shorts also on disney plus now yeah that and i don't think there's been a disney or pixar movie good enough to own in a while i was thinking about this today i was like is there any that i would want to well i think i might be willing to own encanto that's the only one that's even in contention i think you like that movie more than me I still think it's a it's a fine movie. It's it's their best in a while, but it's not like, oh, I'm going to revisit this over and over again, mm-hmm. personally, at any rate. But mainly, I mean, you get to hear Judy Dench telling a story. <laughs> True. I mean, I might look that up. Uh, I'll say it's very telling, I think, that they only had the one park character and for such a short time i think they knew they had a bomb on their hands yeah i think they knew that obviously disney's in the news for pretty much mostly bad things this movie you know we've been working on it forever the story was never really cracked i think if you just watch this movie you're like oh yeah that doesn't work and they i mean they dumped it in april right they gave the prime november slot you know that thanksgiving uh, animated movie slot that's really where they have found these things tend to make the best money. They gave that quite rightly to The Incredibles. Yep, which is 
an amazing movie, still one of my favorites. Absolutely. Not only a better movie on every conceivable, possible, imaginable axis, like like such it, like it's it feels ridiculous to even mention them in the same sentence, a better movie. Mm-hmm. But I think it was I can't remember if it beat Finding Nemo's record to be the most successful Pixar movie, but it made a ton of money. It was a huge financial success. I'm not sure it did because I thought I remembered seeing that Finding Nemo made the most money for a really long time. It's it's very possible, but still nobody was disappointed. No. Incredibles, I'm looking it up now. Box office on a 90 to 150 million dollar budget estimated uh, made 630 million. (laughs) So nobody was disappointed about how the Incredibles was doing, except maybe Michael Eisner, who needed people to believe Pixar was bad for (laughs) a job. Yeah. But like you said on Brother Bear, this is the time when it was the accepted truth. Disney, the Disney movies are not great and the Pixar movies are I kind of still feel like, why did we see this one in the theaters? <laughs> um, because because there's nothing in April. That's the thing. We There must have just been some reason we wanted to go to the theater and we're like, this will be hopefully OK. America utterly failed to bust a moo. <laughs> and yes, ladies and gentlemen, you said utterly. utterly. Yes, I know. Uh huh. Uh huh. That America did not bust a moo on April two, though. <laughs> they totally no. failed to do that. Not that it's clear what that would entail. Ah, well, did it succeed in our hearts? Is the question everyone's wondering. Mom, would you recommend this movie? And would you show? I mean, you did show it to a child, but yeah, would you now, knowing what you know now? I don't think I would recommend this movie. I don't know that I would say avoid like the plague or anything, but I wouldn't recommend it either. And But I think I would still be willing to show it to a child. It doesn't really have that much in it that I feel like is going to be bad for a child to see. I mean, it's mostly silly and maybe the jokes will hit a child better than, you know, an adult, because at least they'll be like, ha ha, silly cows. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's some inappropriate humor that's mostly going to go over a kid's head. Oh, yeah. Clearly did for us. There might be. I mean, the characters are kind of mean to each other, but I, you're probably fine. A little. But again, it's it's very minor. But I will I will say this, though, just because I was thinking about this today and I have to come up with something interesting to say in this section, which is obviously a foregone <laughs> conclusion. Nobody should watch this movie Like, yeah, it's not Brother Bear. It's not Pocahontas. It's not Fox and the Hound. But you should never watch it. It's extremely bad. It's so, so bad. And there's really nothing to. Again, the best thing you could say about it is, hey, there's worse. It's true. If you you know, if you've got the option, go watch something good instead. Does not ask you to root for a serial killer. But that's the thing. I was thinking today, I was talking to somebody because today on Twitter, there was a dumb person, as always, who everyone was talking about. (laughs) But it was this person who wrote this like best-selling book about movies and talked about how they don't like old movies. They think old movies have nothing of value. Uh, They were just like tech demos and we've perfected the art of movies since then a perspective our podcast obviously does not share yeah and i was talking to somebody about this and being like you know yeah as a little kid i had an aversion to 
black and white movies somewhat, as I think little kids tend to do. But you guys mm-hmm. trained us out of that. And I was talking specifically about like you guys introduced us to the Marx Brothers and that I remember being one of the things that most made me okay with black and white movies because I was like, yeah, it's in black and white. Yeah, these movies are literally from like the 30s, but this is the funniest stuff I've ever seen and still is. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I I really appreciated today as so many people (laughs) were. We frequently made you guys join us for movies that you guys were like, yes mom and dad are making us watch this movie again and then you'd watch it with us and be like that movie was so great and we were like yeah see we told you absolutely which i think you need to do because (laughs) kids are dumb and they just want to see stuff they've already seen before and hopefully as an adult you grow out of that impulse and develop some intellectual curiosity or you go and watch all the disney movies you've already seen before again (laughs) and make a podcast about it well you can do both i think (laughs) but you know in this day when so many people are showing their dumb ignorance i'm once again grateful for being Uh, raised right in that regard and, you know, having the curiosity that has led me to love movies and explore movies Mm -hmm. and appreciate movies from, you know, even these Disney movies that, you know, appreciating the much older ones and all this stuff. And so I'm going to say, no, don't show this to a child because (laughs) all this movie can do for a child is hold their attention for 70 minutes with bright colors and a lot of noise. And you can do better. Yeah, you do better. You can show your kids something that, the matters and that they'll take with them forever. I mean, it's but yeah, like in terms of the usual way we phrase the question of like, is it going to harm a child if you show it to them? No, it's fine, whatever. But yeah, your kid will come up stupid. <laughs> you let us watch it twice and look at me. <laughs> uh, but that is going to do it for me, Mom and the Mouse. We somehow talked for nearly two hours about Home on the Range. Can't believe it. Yeah. Next week, <laughs> the suffering continues with 2005's Chicken Little. Possibly. Possibly. I've said this in the past. I don't know if I still hold to it just because there's been so much, but possibly the worst Disney movie of all time apocalyptically bad film in my opinion. But mom, what do you think of this movie? I'm interested to see it again because I don't remember it very much. It's been so long since I watched it and you keep going on about how terrible it is, but I don't remember it being that bad. I'm yeah, I'm curious to see whether we'll have a big disagreement on what we think of the movie or whether I will agree with you that it is also horrible, but I'm not sure that anything's going to top or should I say bottom Fox and the Hound as the worst Disney movie ever. Or I should say the worst Disney animated canon movie of all time. Yeah, I don't know that Fox and the Hound can be beat, but if any movie has a chance of taking the title of absolute hound crap, (laughs) it would be uh, Chicken Little. So until next time, we're watching that so you don't have to. (laughs) I'm me. And I'm Mom. And it all started with a... Oh, wait, we should have waited for April, too. No, wait, stop, stop.